You're listening to Dr. Lana and Detective David Love. The Universal Soul Love Show. The Universal Soul Love Show. Increase spiritual awareness. The Universal Soul. Advanced personal growth and development. Explore the hidden mysteries of the universe. The divine feminine essence and the sacred masculine source. The universal soul show. Promote the message of universal love. The universal soul love show. Hello, welcome to Universal Soul Love. I'm Detective David Love. And I'm Dr. Lana Love. And welcome to Universal Soul Love Radio Show. The show that's dedicated to raising the consciousness of the planet. And today our very special guest is Robin Drake. Robin is the founder of The People Formula, the former head of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Program. Robin Drake has studied interpersonal relations and behavior for more than 27 years, both within the US government and with private sector organizations. He is a certified practitioner in the use of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, emotional intelligence, and the personal discernment instrument. Robin has been head of the elite behavioral analysis program of the FBI's counterintelligence division. Through his professional roles and his passionate interest in this field, Robin has developed his own unique interpersonal techniques and tools. He's the founder and the president of People Formula LLC, an organization that offers advanced report building training and consultation. Robin is the author of several books. The most recent one is The Code of Trust, and his other book is It's Not All About Me, The Top 10 Techniques, for building quick rapport with anyone. And I believe Robin is working on his latest book as well. Welcome to the show, Robin. That being said, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So good to have you on the show. So, Robin, if ever there was a behavioral specialist, I would imagine it would be you. Um, maybe. It's a, it's a, as in most things in life, it's a lifelong journey, um, not a destination. And every day, is, uh, is new discoveries in really what the foundation of interpersonal relationships really are. And that's trust. And so, it, you know, I wasn't born. Um, some people are born natural leaders. Some people are born with great empathy. I'm, you know, my background as a type A hard charger from the Naval Academy and the United States Marine Corps FBI can really scream at you, you know, intensity. <laughs> and uh, when you take that approach um, to have a conversation with someone or try to inspire cooperation it's you're going to fail majestically most of the time so it really it's been a journey of, of discovering what my weaknesses are and trying to take my strengths and, and maximize those so i can overcome those weaknesses mm, well right. said yeah I, I guess that the military is not um known for its great empathy uh, yes and no. You know, it, it's a fascinating thing. You know, in the Marine Corps, the it's a it's a it's a fantastic community. 
you know, because as human beings, our genetic and biological coding, we're always seeking affiliation to meaningful groups and organizations because that meant our genetic survival uh, thousands of years ago. So we, we want to belong to meaningful groups and organizations where we feel that value and affiliation. And military organizations have a great, great venue to do that. And then even in Marine Corps, it's, you know, they call it a brotherhood. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, gender or anything else. It's, it's a camaraderie that's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. But when faced with adversity many times or any combat situations, you know, different emotions are going to come out. But in general, it's, it's a, most of the Marines I've interacted with are actually pretty empathetic um, towards, mm-hmm. towards the others. And of course, needing to belong in a community is a basic instinct of every person. Mm, relationships. Yeah. Absolutely. And you capitalize on it, you know, in organizations like that or any organization where um, it's of service to others, you know, service to others is a very empathetic thing. So any public servants, you know, or people in your line of work, both of you, mm-hmm. uh, same thing. It's being of service to others. So I want to ask you about your background and how you came to become author of the Tr- Code of Trust. And it's not all about me. <laughs> Actually. So, so my original answer years ago, um, you know, I was in high school. All I wanted to be was a Naval Academy graduate, aerospace engineer, Navy pilot, and astronaut. That's all. So, yeah, that's all. <laughs> okay. so I get asked the question a lot. So how did you get to take over the behavioral analysis program for the FBI? And I said, well, that was easy. I failed at everything else I was supposed to do. <laughs> But in reality, it was, you know, a journey where, you know, the, my, my first assignment in the FBI was, you know, counterintelligence. And when you work in counterintelligence, you're, you need to create relationships with people that might not have the best interests of my country in their heart. And uh, it's the, we'll probably think one of the most challenging sales jobs on the face of the planet. And if you take that kind of hard charging law enforcement approach to that, that's where you'll fail. Um, so I was luckily I was surrounded by some great Jedi masters of, of uh, trust building that I, I, I learned on the job training from. So I got better at it and understood the principles behind leadership, but just didn't have the, the, the biomechanics really down for it. But on this journey where I got on our team first as a team member years ago, um, it just started giving labels and meanings to behaviors. You know, I call it the new car effect. You know, every time you buy a new car, all of a sudden you start seeing that make and model everywhere. You know, it's like three people in your town bought the same car that same day because it has label and meaning to you. You don't even have to try to say it, uh, see it. So what happens is, is you give, give that behavior label the meaning. You can recognize it all the time. And so I was asked to um, do some articles and write about it and teach this stuff. And all of a sudden I started to give myself this, this new car effect. So that re- that's what really started expanding my knowledge uh, of what was actually going on. You mean patterns, you recognize certain behavioral patterns and you sort of give that a, that a label. It's, um, I mean, people are generally, from my point of view as a private investigator, are quite predictable, but they're also very complex. So you see a set of patterns. I mean, you can almost predict these patterns and you see them and it's sort of very helpful, but it's, um, I, yeah. I, I, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so that's an interesting way to look at it and I never, thought of it quite that way but you're absolutely right human beings to me are exceptionally predictable the the complex the complexity of it is is to is to understand what makes them predictable which is easy so what's predictable is if i can figure out what your priorities are according to you not what i think they are but what you think they are your needs wants dreams aspirationals um, both personal and professional long-term short-term and basically how you view prosperity from your point of view you're now very predictable because you will now always take actions in terms of those things. Now, the complexity is 
is getting the trust level high enough that they're willing to share all these priorities with you and that they're being fully transparent of them and not deceiving with them um, because that's what becomes very predictable. If I know these things about you and I offer you resources in terms of achieving them, I know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to do those things. So you, you said that you were doing this for counterintelligence. Can you explain to us the major difference between intelligence and counterintelligence? Um, okay. <laughs> they, it, they overlap a lot. Um, yeah, because I a lot imagine. So intelligence gathering is nothing more than, you know, someone in a position, and it doesn't matter whether it's a private sector where you have a competitor that is coming out with a new product and you're trying to gain intelligence on that, or whether it's a, a state actor that is trying to gain intelligence about upcoming negotiations, peace treaties, um, the military industrial complex. I don't care what it is. It's just, you know, information is intelligence. I've, I've done competitive intelligence. Yeah. It's all the same thing. So counterintelligence is thwarting the efforts of people collecting intelligence. So it's really just blocking uh, and understanding um, what, the, what your critical vulnerabilities are. And you only understand what the critical vulnerabilities are if there's intelligence collection. Um, so it's, it's basically just countering you know, the efforts of measures. Well, now, I would have thought that anyone who's counter, countering intelligence would also be gathering intelligence and, you know... <laughs> Yeah, because the way you count, you know, so the, the biggest thing, the, the biggest win you can have in the world of counterintelligence is to get um, a foreign official cooperating with you to share the information about the, the intentions and motivations of their country and, ha and their methods about how they're acquiring it. In order to do that, you have to gain intelligence on an individual. And what kind of intelligence are you looking for? Their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations, their priorities. Because all, all I'm ever doing is offering them opportunities to serve their own priorities, and then they make a choice on whether it's in their best interest or not, according Mas to what they think. Maslow. <laughs> so, so basically, yeah. we're, we're talking about recruiting, re recruiting spies for the other side. Right, but and someone asked me the other day, so how do you recruit a Russian spy? I said, you don't. You you actually just find out about their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations, and, and their priorities. And if they overlap with yours and the things you have to offer, then that's where you have a cooperation. You start building a, a trusting and healthy relationship. Remember I told you in the old days, how do you plant a bug? The best way to plant a bug is to give it away. You know how they used to give away those um, video cameras and stuffed animals as a gift? Yeah, I have, you know. I have a friend that's a social engineer um, <laughs> that's penetrating testing. And the, the easiest way he gets um, when he tests companies for their vulnerabilities, the easiest way to uh, compromise a system is go into a men's bathroom and have a thumb drive. And on that thumb drive, you put um, pay incentive, pay raises, or porn. Someone's going to plug that into a computer. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Or if you're, serve process, if you're a process server, you can give away the divorce papers in a, in a pizza box or a, <laughs> as a police delivery man or in a bouquet of flowers. I know it's horrible. But this is a, this is kind of, it can be a dirty job, uh, at least on my end, of what I used to do. But as social engineering, we studied it. We literally would study social engineering online. People would teach it techniques to get information. You tell other people what they want to hear in order to get what you want out of them, which is, you know, one of the reasons I'm not doing it anymore. It, 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 sound, it sounds like, though, that your, um, your interest has changed over the years to... Um, perhaps looking at relationships mm. and, and trust and uh, looking it's, at other behavioral yeah, reasons for profiling. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, so um, David, the things you're mentioning, um, yeah, investigators, law enforcement, people who use those things, um, but they're pure manipulation because mm. you're to control actions, thoughts, or opinions of others and plant your ideas in them with the use of deception or subterfuge. And here's another guarantee. I love guarantees of human behavior. I guarantee you if that deception is or attempt of manipulation is discovered, you will not have trust guaranteed. Um, and I can't afford that. So, mm-hmm. so I, over the years, I, I, you know, with my code of trust I came up with, I have three anchors for it. And, and these I mm-hmm. honor above all else and everything I do is number one is a healthy, happy professional relationship. Um, you will not achieve anything, any of the, 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 the minute little means goals you think are so important to get to the end, um, without a good, healthy relationship. So I will go with the ends goals first End goals for me are those healthy, happy professional relationships. Number two is open, honest communication and full transparency because I cannot have a healthy relationship with someone unless I'm being fully open, honest and transparent. And the third is I make myself an available resource for the prosperity of others with no expectation of reciprocity. That's my fail safe. One that that says that I'm here as a resource for your prosperity, meaning that I make myself available, saying I don't impose myself on your life if you don't want me, because it's all about you. Um, resource for your prosperity is also keywords. I once offered someone help um, paying for the college education of their kids if they cooperated. And they said, what kind of father and husband do you think I am? I can't um, pay for my own family. Screw you and get out of my life. Because that, that, even that word of help gives an air of some little bit of superiority. I am hypersensitive to any words that think me superior in any way as well. So that's why an available resource for their prosperity. Prosperity is also a key word because people have lots of different definitions of prosperity mm-hmm. and it's all about how to define it. And the key here, the final one is no expectation reciprocity. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing something, I'm taking action because I'm trying to gain something. Now it's an attempt of manipulation and control and I won't do it. Mm-hmm. So I offer my resource with no expectation. Now, when you do this and you make it all about them, is there, is there a higher probability of reciprocity? Absolutely. But I don't think in terms of it. Because if they don't want to, I'm totally fine. And that's the ability just to, like you said, you know, embrace change, embrace uh, loss. Because mm. you, <laughs> you're going to face it. Just meant you're not meant to have a healthy engagement right now with that person. I agree with everything you said. I've learned all that along the way as well. Um, you, I mean, you, you just said it really well. Um, but it's rather than telling someone what they want to hear in order to get what you want, it's, um, it's more about, as I learned, what's your integrity? And I've learned that in business, it's far better to, rather than trying to tell somebody what, why they need what you have, it's better to find out what they need. You know, it's, it's a much, it's a much more, because it's a better business model to, to how can I help you? What can I do for you? You're not talking, not talking in terms of what's important to them you're wasting your breath they're going to be polite at best Mm. um i'd much you know that's why i i define also i totally stay away from words like convincing someone of something Mm. i think that's a total waste of time i never convince anyone of anything i inspire them to want to because inspiration takes the focus off of me which is convincing and inspiration puts the focus on them you can only inspire someone to take an action or to cooperate or share information or do anything if you're talking in terms of them and so that's what it's about. It's about discovering what their priorities are. Because a lot of times people don't really understand what it is they're trying to do that's for uh, sure. in most situations. Yeah. And so it's just helping them, again, being a resource for them discovering the path that they're attempting to walk and being a resource for them to do it uh, if they want. Again, always if they want. Empower people with choice. We don't give people choices unless we value them.
Excellent. Excellent. How, how can I ask you, how did you, I know how I've done this, but how did you sort of make the transition from what you're doing in your, as an FBI agent to what you're doing, what you're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the change in your, the way you operate, I should say methodology. Yeah. So I'm, I've always been a pretty reflective guy, um, especially when you have that type A personality in, in your mouth and you're an extrovert and you're from the Northeast in the United States. Um, you, you typically think out loud. And when I was a lot younger, I tended to judge a lot of people. And so uh, I would let you know what I thought about you. And that would fail majestically a lot of times. Um, I was very str uh, strong opinionated uh, in certain areas. And the, when you have that and that kind of type A personality, you're going to have peaks and valleys, success, failure, success, mm -hmm. failure. Um, and every time I failed, it, it, it wounded me. And I reflected. I said, what was it about that? What wasn't I doing when I was doing these other things? And that also, as I told you before, I was surrounded by some great people. Um, the, my one Jedi master, his name's John. In the book, he's Jesse Thorne. Um, this guy is hands down one of the best developers of trust and rapport I've ever met in my entire life. He's one of these guys. And, and, and I mean, at least 50% of the world has this where they're the natural people there, you know, a lot of, you know, as a psychologist, you probably have this too, you know, where people just want to talk to you. You're, they're inspired and they can't even describe why, but man, they love sharing with you. Um, he's one of those guys. He'd sit down and have a conversation. He would say like three words and the other person was just pouring their guts out. So it became my lifelong study to figure out, you know, as I met him 21 years ago when I first came in, what is he actually doing? You know, people, you know, think it's a subjective art form because some people are born leaders because there's real leadership in there. Mm -hmm. uh, leaders, you know, the subjective part of it is very empathetic. Um, and some people, they need to learn it. And I was one of those ones that needed to learn it. So I, what I did was I focused on breaking down the actual things he was actually doing when doing that. And it came to these four really simple things to demonstrate value and affiliation to others. And that was, he was always seeking the thoughts and opinions of other people. Again, when you're seeking someone's thoughts and opinions, you're demonstrating value. You're demonstrating that you're affiliated. Second, he validated them and their thoughts and opinions non-judgmentally. And he had congruence in what he's saying and his non-verbals. So, so there's lots of congruence there. So it was sincere and genuine. Uh, next, he um, talked in terms of their priorities, their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations, personal, professional, long-term, and short-term. And finally, if, if appropriate, he empowered them with choice as well, because we do not give people choices unless we value them in some way. So all he was always doing was including at least one of those four things. One of the things I, I do when I talk a lot, I ask the people in an audience or anyone in general, I said, you know, think about the strongest relationships you have with someone, the best ones, the closest people, the people you trust implicitly. How often during the course of a day or a conversation with them, do you do one of those four things? Are you seeking their thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of their priorities, validating them, and empowering them to Yes. I'd say, I'd say roughly 5 to 10%. And can imagine the power of the relationship you'd have if, it, if you could jump it up to 100%. So. Let me ask you something. It's, it's interesting that you're trying to quantify this. And certainly mm -hmm. any, any counsellors, anyone who has, um, is learning to, to, um, to talk to people, would be looking at those criteria and, and making sure that you're empathic and you're asking about them. But I wonder whether it can it be boiled down just to that. What about the heart? Yes. What about actually feeling love and, and 
That's the feeling that part. sense towards people that you have goodwill and you have the interest at heart, actually mm. feeling it, mm. not just, I mean, is it actually possible to, to learn that without turning the heart on? Mm. I, I, so I've had this question a lot when I, when I do a lot of training, especially with law enforcement. I actually have had a lot of law enforcement or other people while I'm doing this talking about the code of trust, which is basically to me a code of empathy. Um, say to me, well, Robin, how do I fake it? I just don't care about people. Um, and I was like, well, you're in the wrong line of work for one thing, but here's what's really good about this. One of the, one of, one of the guarantees um, that I have found when doing this is when, when you have a, a challenging situation, a challenging relationship with someone that, or someone's bothering you in some way that you feel zero empathy for, first of all, I don't allow that in my life. There's no one that bothers me in any way because those are the ones that I'll do. The first thing I'll do is I'll seek to understand their context. In other words, how is it and why is it they have the behaviors they have? Why is it they think the way they do? Why is it they are living the way they're living? And, and how is it they're making the choices they're making? Because the further back in time you go to try to understand who they are as a human being, what starts skyrocketing immediately? Tolerance. And once tolerance skyrocketing, mm. that understanding starts. And what's understanding is the beginnings of empathy. So this entire process, you don't have to believe it. If you just seek thoughts and opinions, talk in terms of their priorities, and validate their context non-judgmentally, you're going to start, you're, the emotion is start going to get congruent with the words. Mm -hmm. I call it a creepy car salesman. Creepy car salesmen come across bad because they're saying the right words, mm -hmm. but they don't have emotional connection mm -hmm. to what they're saying. This process is starting to get that congruence down for people. Because again, T, you're totally right. If you don't have it, you're going to come off across as a manipulator mm -hmm. and builds up, you won't have trust. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just going to say that everything you've just said is the path that you you will go through no matter what. If you're, you know, learning um, because I took courses on nonverbal communication and reading body language and practiced it over 20 years, interviewing uh, victims and witnesses, and in doing that, you do that. You do that exact thing. You listen. You do active listening and empathic listening. And you seek to understand that person in order to relate to them better. And in doing that, when you're trying to learn to understand what makes that person tick, so to speak, you can't help but become compassionate and empathic for that person or, or, or other people over time as you're practicing this as part of your job or just in life. It's a natural process. And you will, you just start to develop that heart based. Um, wanting to connect to that person on a deeper level and understand that person level and learn to really see, become more less less judgmental or non-judgmental and just see that person as a human being with issues as we all do. Right, because um, I, I talk about validation, non-judgmental validation as a cornerstone for this. And an important difference here is Validation doesn't necessarily mean you agree with someone. It just means you sought to understand them non-judgmentally, because mm -hmm. that's all people are looking for is mm -hmm. to be understood. You know, I mean, so I mean, I I do this with law enforcement all the time. I always ask the cops in a room, "Is there, how many of you have gotten someone to confess?" All the hands go up. And I said, "Great." So why? How? You know, and they I get a lot of uh, I don't know, just kind of did the things you're talking about. I said, "Well, help. Here's I'll give you some labels and meanings." It's because you sat there and you thought you sought their thoughts and opinions. Yeah, I said, did you talk in terms of their priorities and the limited options they had, um, as limited as they might be, and you became a resource for them achieving and making those choices? They said, yes. I said, and did you validate what they did non-judgmentally, sought to understand how it is they made the choices they did? 
Yes. I said, so why don't you do that with everyone else in your life? What's the difference? Mm -hmm. Those are, uh, those are the same cornerstones. You're demonstrating affiliation. You're demonstrating value. Um, and you became, I mean, and I said, how many of you actually have had people you've put away in jail? Now, granted, you didn't put them away. They made choices and you became a resource for them to mitigate those choices the best they could. How many of you have actually had people when they got out of jail, try to look you up and try to befriend you again and, and show you how they've transformed and changed. And they all mm -hmm. nod their heads and said, yeah, and why? Because you did those things. So, so why don't you do that with everyone else in your life? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And, and and that was the path that I took. And I also, you know, reflected on my experiences and, you know, my, what went wrong in the situation and how could I have done that better? And through that process, you do build up your, your moral values and your integrity and who you are and what you stand for in life. And it really sets you thinking about, you know, just who you are and how you want to be with others in interactions. So the cornerstone of everything that I've discovered through this entire thing is, is, is nothing but a healthy relationship mm -hmm. there. You, I'd rather have, you know, seven people cooperating with me, give me 120% of their effort with a healthy relationship than a hundred people give me 5% reluctantly because I convinced them of trying to do something. It's mm -hmm. a total waste. It's wasting their time. And I honor, and I honor people's time more than anything. And why bother? I mean, I just, it's all, everything that I, I often say this, I said, you can have all the skills on the face of the planet. You can be a rocket scientist. You can have all these great things, but if you don't have relationships, you might as well be a moron on top of a mountain because mm -hmm. you will have nothing with those skills unless you have relationships with someone to share it with. That's right. Absolutely. And everything you're saying, no matter what, I don't, you know, whoever's listening, whatever religion they happen to be or whatever their political affiliation is, whether they're moderates or conservatives or liberals or Muslim, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, whatever it happens to be, everything you're saying relates to these religions and philosophies on a very fundamental level. Um, the values that you're imparting right now that you're speaking about, they're, they're fundamental to all systems of belief. And it's interesting that you talk about the, the finding out more about people and, and that's actually, you know, in my line of work, obviously taking a history, finding out about their childhood mm. and, uh, and their life. Uh, that's fundamental to understanding a person. It's, it's basically being able to stand in someone else's shoes mm. in your imagination and then right. that leads to much greater empathy. Yeah, you know, and, and you know this, Lana, really much better than I do. I, I didn't do nearly the, the amount of study on it that you have, but, you know, you know, Erickson developmental model, you know, those formative years between the ages of roughly 8 to about 19 to 24 before the prefrontal lobes fully formed, those emotional things that you go through form that imprint on you for the rest of your lives. And so that period of time really sets in course how you're going to view the world through your particular optic. And there is no right or wrong to it. There just mm -hmm. is, you know, and once you understand what there is is, you now understand how it is they're interacting with the world without judgment. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you've, you just described that you're, you have been in a situation where you've asked the police how it is that they were able to, you know, build trust with um, the, the people they interacted with in work. And then you ask them why they don't do that in their personal life. So does that mean that you often will coach people, not just professionally, but, you know, give them advice about how to run their personal life in your course of work? So yes, until you said give advice. Um, <laughs> only because I don't give advice. Guidance. Um, that's a, that, no, I don't even do that. That's an error superior. I am so okay. hypersensitive. Okay. What I do, is ask, and we were talking about this before, I ask what I call discovery questions. Um, one of the greatest things I love about the code of trust, it's very empathetic, 
And the greatest thing, the next thing that's part of this is remember my third anchor, an available resource for the prosperity of others with no expectation of reciprocity. The way I do that is by asking what I call discovery questions. If I see someone emotionally hijacked, I see someone going through a challenge or a struggle or, or in any other situation, I merely ask, help me understand what is it you're trying to achieve? What is it you're trying to get out of the situation? Um, to get them cognitively thinking again, get the prefrontal lobe flooded back out and say, then all I ask is, so help me understand, is what you're doing helping or hindering you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because people are so much more likely to take action if they make the choice about what it is they want to do, because, you know, I just don't tell anyone what to do. I just ask them objectively, you know, how is this what you're doing helping or hindering? Where it is you're trying to achieve mm-hmm. what you want to go to? Because a lot of times people don't do that in the moment because that, you know, mm-hmm. emotional stress, anxiety, discontentment, resentment. It, it totally gives you tunnel vision and you're, and you're trying to beat down that door one way without taking that objective look back and say, wow, I'm trying to beat this door down, but this door was open the entire time. Why don't I just walk over there and do that? Um, and so in order to do that, it, it takes someone to help you be objective. That's why I love this because it's incredibly empathetic about understanding and want to be a resource for others and their prosperity and their success. While at the same time, you can't get emotionally attached to the decisions they're making because then you start riding an emotional roller coaster with them and you get emotionally hijacked with them and then you're useless to them in that situation. So it maintains that objectivity so that you can be that resource. Mm. I love those questions. They're very powerful. It's very much part of, I believe, motivational interviewing, actually Mm. getting the person to make the decisions, Mm. allowing the person to objectively view themselves and then allowing them to make better decisions in the future. Mm. It's like the Socratic method, and I use that quite a bit too. I've heard that. You know, again, you, you guys have done much more study in all these things. Um, I've heard the overlay from what I'm doing is the Socratic method, yeah. I guess in my line of work, we're very much focused on, you know, people on empathy and also on looking at the symptoms and trying to help people. Um, in terms of therapy, which I do as well, that's, I guess, where we're looking more at behavioural change. But uh, in, in terms of behavioural profiling, I, I'm, I'm interested, you know, quite often, you know, people might um, think that I'm psychoanalyzing them from my line of work. And I imagine you get that as well. Mm. In terms of profiling people, would you uh, like to, um, just to, uh, to make this fun, have you profiled us? In the back of your mind, are you unconscious? Are you consciously or unconsciously profiling us? And I'd be interested to know what you think about us, and can you predict our behaviour? I think everyone does this anyhow, <laughs> but we all do this. But we're all it's, it's, kind of it's a great question. It's actually like you've said before. It's evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got introduced to the concept of profiling, it was about judging. It's about ju- and not judging good or bad, just judging. And, you know, to understand people and their motivations, you know, and we talked in terms of vulnerabilities that people had or their motivations, like I said, and what I did, I just don't do that anymore. What I'm always looking for, because people always ask me, so what can I do to start doing something right away if I want to be a profiler? I said, well, I don't profile for one thing. I strategize healthy engagements. And so the way I do that is I try to discover what your priorities are, you know, how you view prosperity, you know, and just... You know, just through our interactions, through email, um, dialogue here, um, the resiliency of trying to get the audio and video working. Right. You know, 
so here's what I'd say. You guys are exceptionally passionate about what it is you do. I think you're exceptionally passionate about your backgrounds and, and what you bring to, to the, to the fight for others, you know, to be a resource for them and their prosperity. So what becomes predictable is that you're going to keep doing things that are furthering that. Um, the fact that you have, you know, someone on board now as a production manager in some way. So you're, you're continually advancing in this direction and you're dedicated and committed to it. That's, you know, that's what I kind of say. You know, in the short time we've had. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that people are predictable. In my view, quite often people are unpredictable, but it, it may be that we're looking at different parameters. That's um, an interesting one because, uh, you know, I think humans are very complex mm. and you can sometimes yes. boil them down to a particular pattern, but then people will take you by surprise and do something completely different. So here's how I caveat, caveat predictability. Um, if I, if I believe I have a good understanding of what your priorities are and how you view prosperity from your certain point of view, and I offer you resources for you achieving those things, I should reasonably predict you're going to take advantage of those things or situations that further those things um, that I believe are your priorities. Well, here's the caveat. If you don't, it means I didn't do a good job to figuring out what your priorities are, or you're deceiving me, you're omitting things, or you're roadblocked, or you actually have things that you are your priorities that you actually haven't discovered yet. Um, so that's what I mean by predictability. Um, so if I have been inaccurate at predicting what you're going to do next, it's my fault that I haven't got to know you at a deeper level to understand what your true um, priority is. Well, this is where it gets quite interesting for me because in my line of work, people, certainly the ones that I see, tend to sabotage themselves all the time and tend not to take advantage of resources which well, will further them. So you're... you're so you're, you're suggesting that the people will always try to be orientated towards their own success. I see a lot of people that sabotage uh, themselves. I see a lot of people that further themselves through therapy as well. Mm. Yes. Well, remember, priorities are from their point of view. And, and mm. success is a different word. Um, priorities. If priority, yeah. If, if their priority is to sabotage themselves <laughs> subconsciously, right. predictable. You know, and, and so, again, the definition of crazy is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Without your intervention, I can actually guarantee exactly what they're going to do each and every time because they're not going to grow beyond what their, their okay. suppressed priorities are that okay. they can realize. And so, also, you're also dealing with a different area too because you actually got uh, individuals because you're starting to edge up towards some maybe malformations of brain, chemical imbalances. Because as, as, you know, as a psych, uh, not a psychologist, but as a uh, psychiatrist – you deal with the medical side a lot as well that I don't because again, I'm generally dealing with it in this normal parameter. Okay. I mean, the people I see are very normal though. I mean, it's, you know, being depressed, being anxious is a normal part of life. So, well, oh, yeah. so, so can you give us an example mm -hmm. of, um, you know, perhaps two or three different types of people that you would, um, approach in very different ways if you were wanting to motivate them or take up mm. some particular offer? Um, so, okay. Um, pretty recently, the, you know, we, the, I think everyone pretty around the world understands the threat of unmanned aerial systems or drones in uh, public spaces and open spaces. Sure, uh, sure. An emerging threat. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, one of my jobs was to find someone that could give us information about those things so we could actually arm law enforcement with knowledge about what we can, might be able to do about it, make what, where threats might emerge. And so, you know, in order to do that, I had to talk to friends, you know, resources. I asked them. They didn't know, but they, they had, I called the, the couple degrees away from, from the goal. And so they knew a couple other people anyway someone uh, highlighted an individual to me that would probably be a good resource for this uh, information. And so my code of trust is really simple. Um, my process is one, what's my goal and objective um, and my slash my priorities. And then the second part of step one is how can I inspire them to want to. And so step one is always remembering my goals and priorities. Number one, healthy, happy relationship Two, open eyes, communication, transparency. Third, make myself a resource for their prosperity. Now, Step two is what are their priorities? What are their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations like we already discussed? Mm -hmm. And if I don't know when it, any of these things are, one thing I can always kind of count on is some sort of a level of assistance. Because again, that ancient primal need we have to affiliate and be part of a tribe means that if someone gives you an assistance, um, the likelihood of reciprocity is pretty high because of that tribe mentality. Um, now that's the, might not be assistance to be, but maybe from the information they're willing to share, they can be an assistance to someone else in their, in their tribe and community. So for a drone pilot necessarily, we, we have a desire for open air spaces, um, and not having it restricted by the federal aviation uh, administration. So that's an overlapping priority because I'm a pilot as well. I want open air spaces, um, a, a desire to protect my fellow humankind uh, through public safety. That might be an overlapping priority. So those are priorities. Step three is context. And context is understanding their context, and this is where I might build some affiliation. So in this particular area, you know, drone pilots fly in the air. I'm a pilot. I fly in the air. Maybe that's an overlapping context. I can val validate that and seek more thoughts and opinions about that. And finally, I'm going to start crafting this engagement. And the first thing I do when I, when I, when I think in terms of having to have a dialogue with someone like this that I don't know yet, I'm going to always start out with a specific non-judgmental validation of a strength attribute or action that they've taken on that observed a skill set. And it's very, very specific. So it's not just a line. It's completely real and truthful because that's also the key here. 100% truth and transparency for everything I'm doing. And so I identified this guy um, and I sent him an email. I did this via email really. And I, I just opened up by saying um, I validated one, his time. Mm -hmm. So if I don't know any, a specific to validate, I'm always going to value your time and not wanting to waste it. And I simply said, you know, I'm, I work counterintelligence and in my world right now, we see drones as a possible emerging threat to public safety. And you've been identified as someone who has a lot of expertise that might be willing to help in this public safety arena, but also to help keep the airspace open so that you can do uh, what you do for your commercial industry as well. So again, seeking thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of his priorities. I'd said a few more lines, you know, about who I am, what I do, very open and transparent. I said, if this, any of this sounds like it might be good um, and you'd like to have more for discussion on it. I'd love to have that. Here's some ways to contact me. And if you'd rather I leave you alone and not bother you anymore, please also let me know. I want to make a note not to bother you. So every single sentence honored, seeking thoughts and opinions, talked in terms of his priorities, validated his point of view um, non-judgmentally and empowered him a choice. So that's how I do it. Um, I use, and that's model is everything. Um, whether it's, you know, dialoguing between teachers um, that we might have some challenges with, with grading or something with my kids um, principals, neighbors, I don't care what it is. It's the same model all, all the time. Seek thoughts and opinions of others, um, validate non-judgmentally specifics. It just, it's, that's it. I do it. 
And that's very much what's done in um, therapy. You're, you're listening, active listening, empathetic listening, and you're validating what they're saying and seeking so understand. Yeah. Client sent client centered therapy. Absolutely. You know, um, Absolutely. Making that person understand that that person is the focus of your attention. That person's thoughts and opinions are important in this moment. And except where it's quite different is the therapist's main goal is to help, um, to help the, the client mm. grow. Um, whereas in your line of work, you're, you, you're wanting the client or whatever you call them to actually work with you towards goals that you both have um, or towards your own goal. And, you know, depending on which role we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, but those those are means goals um, to mm -hmm. me. But that way, if, if like say this guy decided not to have a cooperation, okay, because I still offered myself as a resource for his prosperity. Sure. No expectation. But you're doing exactly the same thing. You're you you are giving yourself as a resource for their growth and success and prosperity. Um, that's, that's a big anchor for me. I mean, I I, I at all these other little things along the way. Eh, I, that's fine. I don't care. I mean, if they don't want to cooperate, and and, and if, in other words, if they don't have any priorities. That are in line with, with what I'm trying to do, and, and I don't have things I can offer them in terms of their um, priorities. That's fine. I don't care because I'll find something else. Because it all comes down to it comes down to healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. I won't I won't press anything ever because I will not compromise it. So I'm wondering how this would work with kids and adolescents. Do, do you have kids? Yep, I have a one year old daughter and an eighteen year old son. Okay, wow. so I wonder whether these techniques have helped you. Uh, with yes. parenting. Um, Lana so, specializes in child adolescent psychiatry. And I can tell you, adolescents are not always very predictable. True. And they can be the most difficult to deal with, especially I, as a parent, not necessarily as yeah, a therapist. Predictability is funny. Again, it comes down to uh, how much they're sharing um, and, open, and open and honest communication. So mm. um, my son and daughter are very different. They're both very successful. My daughter's in, uh, at George Mason University for nursing. Um, our four-year program up there. My son's about to go to the United States Naval Academy in a couple of weeks. Um, so my son and I strategized the code of trust all the time. He needed a lot of relationships um, to do a lot of things, have lots of depth of field in the areas to be competitive, to do what he wanted to do. We strategize engagements all the time with people um, to, for only the purpose of having a good, healthy relationship. My daughter, on the other hand, um, doesn't want that kind of input and <laughs> doesn't want that kind of dialogue. But the, the aspect of the code of trust that is most important with her and having a good open dialogue is non-judgmental validation of her, her thoughts, opinions, and all of her friends and their thoughts and opinions. Um, Cause uh, as I have observed with them and you know, I'm curious what you, you think about it. Um, and I, I always, I talk to parents about this a lot as well. I said, you know, these early ages of child development, you know, before they actually start having their own thoughts and opinions, we're imparting our thoughts and opinions on them and judging them nonstop to give them our morals and ethics and how we roll in life. And so all of a sudden around the age of nine, 10, 11, whatever hit the middle school years, all of a sudden they start having their own thoughts and opinions. And if you start telling them that you're still and invalidating theirs, their dopamine needs to be funded somewhere. So if it ain't coming from you, they're going to get it from school. If they line up with the wrong ones. You're done. Um, so that was all my wife, by the way, she said, 
we got to be the house that everyone wants to come to. So you got a baseline of what their friends are. So you know what it looks like. Um, so, it, but it's, it is interesting. It's like situational leadership, very different for both of them. But the same principles I, I found are exactly the same. So what do you think is the best way to motivate an adolescent to do what you want them to do? So do what they want them to do. I want them to do what it is they is in terms of what it is they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. My, I was fortunate. Both my kids, um, we try to expose them to a lot of different things um, early in life for, for what they want to do in life. Like my daughter volunteered one summer with my wife at the elementary school, and she really hooked on to the school nurse. She mm-hmm. thought that was great. So she's always been hooked on nursing. And my son, you know, it wasn't really following in my footsteps, although he is in a lot of degrees, but it was just exposure to different areas. He loves science. He loves engineering. And so all it came down to is, again, discovering what it is that they, their priorities are in life and then just being a resource for them achieving it. I remember one time my son came home and said, hey, how come you're not yelling at Caitlin all the time about her grades and you're always on me? I said, it's easy, Kevin. Change your goal. She's trying to go to George Mason's good school. She's competitive school, but she's already got what she needs to get in there. You still need to do work in order to get where it is you're trying to go. Change your goal and we'll change what we're doing. It doesn't matter to me. So it's a matter be again, discovering people's priorities and what it is they're trying to achieve and just being a resource for it without judging it. They could totally switch up what they want to do. I have no problem with it whatsoever. Just as long as they, as long as they feel that sense in here that they're being prosperous and productive in life and they have good, healthy relationships. Yeah, so it really boils down to really getting to know what makes the other person tick. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What inspires them. I, I have a, a, a thought and, and of course we don't, we don't, we try not to talk critically or, or negatively about anyone. I'm just wondering if we can do a little, a little fun thing like you were trying to do before. Um, you don't have to, you can do this any way you want, but um, I'm just thinking the president now the media has covered him. Um, some people say he's completely unpredictable. And I've, I've once said that, um, he's predictable at being unpredictable, <laughs> but just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of. I'm on the side of predictability. Um, if you say something negative about him, you know exactly what's going to happen. He's going to tweet about you. He's going to give you a label and he's going to brand you and it's going to, he's going to fire you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, don't, you know, if you actually, so when he, when he got elected, I actually bought his book, the art of the deal. Cause I wanted to be understand how he thinks again, and this is, I found this really challenging as well recently. Um, if you try to take a, a stoic approach to understanding people like the president who is very controversial, mm-hmm. what happens is, is that what I started realizing is some people are really, really enraged and they're so emotionally hijacked. There's, there's not a lot of cognitive mm-hmm. uh, thought process going on. I love analyzing and the only way you can analyze is to be objective about it. So mm-hmm. I see, I see, I see great, blunders I think with communication and I see some real some real pretty amazing things as well when it comes to him um like everyone everyone's working on something everyone's got strengths and everyone's got boo-boos so um but when it comes to predictability I think he's actually pretty damn predictable um and here's what's also predictable so he gave his um you know during his the whole presidential run-up he said exactly what his policies were going to be that's exactly what he's doing. There's no deviation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Zero deviation. He's, he is fighting for, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, it doesn't matter. He's trying to do everything he laid out he said he's going to do. If you poke him, he's going to fire at you on Twitter. <laughs> he's going to call you names. 
And I mean, it's how that is extremely predictable. True. <laughs> I just every uh, I mean, he, everybody loves to talk about President Trump, and they all have their opinions. And, and you know, um, what about Putin? Do you how do you compare oh, him? How would you profile him? He's also exceptionally predictable. <laughs> so I've worked Russians for 21 years, and um, the Lana's Russian. Oh, Russian background. Oh. <laughs> Another well, one. Here's what's exceptionally predictable about Russians. So, for since World War II, their entire foreign policy centers around countering the United States and NATO allies. The number one threat and adversary. They just switched in their words up after um, Gorbachev and the wall fell. That's it. So, their entire foreign policy centers around countering the United States anywhere in the world. Um, that's predictable, just guaranteed. I mean, I found it pretty predictable that you know we're we're in the midst of maybe having the the meeting with North Korea. Well, who's going to North Korea today? Sergey Lavrov. <laughs> I guarantee you what he's doing. Do you think he's going there to help negotiations with the United States and North Korea or not? I predict he's not. Yeah, so it's, so, so their predictability, they will counter us in every way. And here's the other thing too during our election is because this came out during, um, the indictments that um, Robert Mueller um, gave a number of weeks ago. Again, I'm speaking purely from what I see in the news. I'm not involved with it whatsoever. But during these indictments, uh, what they saw was was that um, during a Trump rally, that there was Russian you know, Russian influence about supporting the Trump rally, and then they supported people to protest the Trump rally, <laughs> which is exactly what they do. To think that the Russians are aligned with anyone proactively helping an American is completely wrong thinking. They're here to totally undermine trust in the United States. Bingo. So that's predictable. Well, they've, they've been a long running worthy opponent of America. I'm just saying worthy opponent, you know, for the last, what, since the fifties or more, I don't know that. I mean, you're right. It has been predictable. It's been the same relation. We've had the same, America's had the same relationship with Russia for the last 60 years or more. Well, then let's talk about another colorful character who perhaps is not as predictable, Kim Jong-un. Oh, I mean, he, he was very much against the South Korea. Now they're, those two are talking to each other. That's very surprising. And it wasn't just about, was it five months ago that we had 38 North mm -hmm. on our show? Actually, talk about yeah. this. So when it comes to predictability, um, for me, if something changes from what's always happened, then something happened to change that behavior. Um, and uh, and I think some of the hypothesis we've seen out there is that, you know, one of the last nuclear tests that they did last year probably compromised their test facility. Um, so, you know, I, I would, I would predict that something happened that they were no longer able to do their normal mm. behavior, like testing missiles and testing nuclears. So that actually changed the behavior. Mm. Um, and so something happened and I'm, I'm more on the side of, because I think we've had a lot of great leaders in the world, both, you know, here in the United States and abroad to try to interact with North Korea in many, multiples of different ways and nothing changed their behavior. So I think it only took something internally to, to change mm -hmm. the behavior. I, I picked up that on that as well. I thought, well, that's a good motivating factor. They may no longer have the means to carry out the threats they've been making. So let's hope anyway. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, if diplomacy fails, um, technology will hopefully. But that, but that was a fun uh, process to go through with you. I think to go yeah. through all those characters. Tell us a little bit about the the tools that your own 
I believe you develop your own interpersonal techniques and tools. But what you've been talking about that. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's that five step process. I use for the trust. Um, it started with the 10 techniques to quick rapport, um, probably back in 2010, all these, and also all these things come about, um, because someone asked me a question. Uh, it was actually a, a friend of mine, Chris Hagnagy, had me on a podcast. I just met him virtually, and he had, he, had, I remember I'd done one podcast with him, and then he said, "Hey, Robin." About a couple months later, he says, "Our our person canceled on us at the last minute. Can you fill in and come on today?" I said, "Sure, Chris. What do you want me to talk about?" And he goes, "I don't know. How about how do you develop rapport in five minutes?" And I'm like, "Huh? How do you do that?" <laughs> and so it was really me thinking about not what I do. But, you know, cause I, I'm surrounded by much greater people than me. And I was just really thinking about my friend, John. I said, when he's doing this, what am I actually observing him doing when he's doing these things? So it, that happened. So that was the 10 techniques uh, there. And then it kind of grew because what happened is whether it was, and as you both know from your training and, and all your practical experience, you start getting deeper and deeper of understanding about why certain things are effective and why other things aren't effective and that was just the process. And that's how I came up with my methodology was just really 21 years on a street practical experience. I read a lot of books, you know, self-education, uh, did my grad work in organizational psych. So I, I got an understanding of, of the science behind what was going on. Um, but then it was just really a lot of trial and error and, and reflection to really understand what everything kept coming down to was this trust and healthy relationships. So you're also an expert in the Myers-Briggs type indicator and yeah. uh, I, I've, I've gone I've looked at that it's incredibly complicated but also incredibly I guess um, useful to, to try to type yourself or type, try to type someone else and we've talked about building good interpersonal relationships and, and and using these techniques to form rapport with other people but of course we all feel that naturally it's easier to form rapport with people with some people rather than other people. And, and so while we, sometimes we're stretching ourselves to, to create a rapport, I'm wondering in the field of finding people that you want to be friends with or, in fact, you want to be intimate with, do you find that it's useful to type yourself and perhaps future partners using the emotional, using the Myers-Briggs type indicator? Is that a good uh, yeah, way? It's a you know, it's funny when I, those are tools, you know, that I, I first got exposed to. And also on the, on the, on the, on the good, on the, on the, <laughs> I know some psychologists and psychologists, you know, are, are not um, believers in a Myers-Briggs uh, just because it's not as um, uh, academically solid, you know, so things that overlap with it are Neo-PR, you know, and I, I'm a big believer in, a, in the five-factor model of Neo-PR. To me, they're all doing very similar things. And that is, um, like you said, it's first when you can take it yourself it's really the first window into yourself that is objective, I think. Mm -hmm. And so you start really understanding where your strengths are, where, where areas of strengths to extreme might be. And then when you actually start doing, it was the first opening I had that I stopped judging others because mm -hmm. I, I love about all these assessment instruments, whether it's Myers-Briggs, Neo-PR, Five Factor Model, all these things, they help understand people's strengths because everyone's got them. Mm -hmm. And so actually use things like the Myers-Briggs, DISC, EQ, emotional intelligence, um, you can really start highlighting where people's strengths are. And once you have people's strengths, now you can actually build the affiliation and healthy relationships based on those strengths. And you know, and that tolerance just skyrockets because um, you start realizing everyone's got something we're working on. Mm -hmm. And 
you might see mine up front today, or but yours is hidden back here today because it's and one of these things we're working on. All our insecurities. Uh, that's what it really comes down to me. I just want to ask Robin one thing. I know we're getting close to running out of time to the end of the show, but uh, I, I've used Myers Briggs as a as a career counseling tool uh, a long time ago. But anyhow, um, those assessment tools can be useful. But I'm just wondering. I just want to speak to the mystic in you because um, I've heard you say a number of things. Um, have you ever, I mean, for me, rapport building is about having a genuine interest in the other person. And, you know, as I've gone along in life, and I'm sure you have too, I bet you've discovered this, you find that everyone is your teacher and you find that everyone has a fascinating story to tell. I remember Lana and I, when we, last time we did our world tour, <laughs> we went to the U.S. and visited my family. We went to Florida to see friends and uh, we were in the hotel and the uh, maintenance man came in and he, I just started talking to him and all of a sudden he was telling us about just his struggles in life and his triumphs and victories. And, and it was really fascinating. You know, you, you learn to value every individual and you realize, and I've worked with celebrities and politicians and multimillionaires and I've worked with criminal offenders and homeless people and mentally ill. And I found that, you learn from everyone and everyone is so fascinating and everybody has excellent, just really intriguing stories to tell if you're really interested in them and you're interested in hearing it if you have time. So, And what a better way than using that to build your empathy mm. and love for your fellow person. Because as an investigator, you know, if you're just one more thing, <laughs> as an investigator, if you're, you know, you may need to, the person that you're trying to get information from, the person that might have the information that you're looking for might happen to be a taxi cab driver. You might not need the politician or the high-powered whoever that's in a high-powered position, you know, a status. So you, you learn anyhow to value everyone that way for that reason alone in your career. Absolutely. I, I, th I love looking at huge crowds of people. And knowing that everyone's got the most amazing story about how they how we all wound up in the same space at the same time in this universe. It sounds like you are exceptionally good at getting to know what motivates and what makes a person tick. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're very sort of uh, um, lucky to have you on our show. It's yeah. really interesting, very interesting to see how those sort of techniques mm. can be used to further our own love of other people, our own qual the quality of our interpersonal relationships. And, you know, I guess just get a sense of what makes people tick and what's special for them. Mm. And really, it, to me, it's uh, how do you live a great, happy life? Mm. Comes down to the happiest people in the world are the ones that have good, healthy relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. We look forward to seeing your new book. Yeah. What it? What is? It? Yeah. So that one is uh, it's actually it's the next part of the journey. It's actually called Who Can You Trust? Okay. Uh, yeah, and it's and the first thing I do in it is I remove I redefine what trust is, um, because I, I, I think trust can can be a, a pretty judgmental word, based on our own individual morals and ethics that we're imposing on someone. So the first thing I do is I remove, remove trust. And then we, it's more of what can I reason, reasonably predict you're going to do in different situations. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so then I have these six signs of trust. Uh, and some of them are, are very, uh, like you've already mentioned, very empathetic. Um, first one is, you know, 
are they vested in your success? In other words, is someone unconditionally vested in your prosperity? Next mm-hmm. one is, you know, do they anticipate a long relationship? Because um, if they do, they're, mo- they're, they're also vested and they're actually going to do things to further a healthy relationship if, it's, if they view it as long term. So it's all these uh, fun signs um, that we all do every day. It just comes, then just, it's then situational dependent because people I view, they're not trustworthy or untrustworthy, very specific in these areas. Like like when driving down the road, I can reasonably assess that the person coming the other direction is not going to hit me. So I can trust he's not going to hit me. What am I doing is I'm reasonably predicting that he's, he's not crossing the line and coming to my lane. It's in his interest. Yeah. And, and, but if I trust them to watch my kids, yeah, I don't know, because I don't have that data. That there much, right? Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Looking forward to seeing it. Excellent. So how can people find your books? How can they find more information about you and your services? And um, really else you want to um, So peopleformula.com. It's www.peopleformula, all one word, .com. And I got links to my uh, couple of my books on there. There's lots of keynote speeches on YouTube that it's linked to. Some podcasts. This will get on there uh, when it, uh, when you all come out with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you Google me, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, it's pretty much anywhere. Um, mm. Australia has. Um, I think they have both my books out there right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Yep. No, I've seen your I've seen one of your articles on Business Insider, which is a source that I happen to like. I think they're pretty good. They were a I loved working with them as well. They did really? good interviews. What a great bunch. They, okay. I found them to be great uh, doing depth to find out um, ahead of time, you know, who you are. Mm-hmm. They did great job. I, I, I like their, I like their, um, their, their format and their, just their writing style and, and everything, or their reporting style. There's one of the few journals that I, I really will check into, you know, if I want yeah, information. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> I like it too. Well, thank you very much, Robin. It's a fascinating topic and, uh, yeah. you know, a great way of perhaps finding more about other people and about yourself. So thank you once again. Very great guest thank for you. Universal Solo. Yes. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I was excited. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. All righty. <laughs> and uh, goodbye from Universal Solo. This is Detective David Love. And Dr. Lana Love. Wishing you a wonderful week. Okay. Bye for now. Thanks.